Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Last week, USU's Department of Languages, Philosophy, and Speech Communications hosted a panel discussion titled Meaning and Me Too. Panelists discussed the Me Too movement and provided historical, cultural, and legal analysis. And today on the program, we're continuing that discussion with the panelists. We welcome in Erica Holberg, USU Assistant Professor of Philosophy. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Uh, Maddie Burkert, uh, USU Assistant Professor of English, joins us. Thanks Thank for you. having me. And Nicole Vivalis, Director of USU's Institutional Re- Review Board uh, Office, joins us. Nice Thanks. to be here. And uh, we're going to talk about Me Too, Time's Up, uh, Due Process, Possible Backlash, What the Role of Men Should Be in the Me Too Movement, Potential Changes in the Workplace and in Society, and Where the Me Too Movement uh, Goes from Here. And we'd love to hear from you. You can comment or ask a question by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Or the number, toll-free number, anywhere you're listening is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. And uh, happy to have you on the program. So let me just go around the, the panel, uh, you know, just give you a, a few minutes to, I guess, restate the central premise of what you said at the panel, or anything else you'd like to say to introduce the, the topic, which is, uh, it's an ongoing mov- moment, and hopefully, I think you would all agree, uh, hopefully, more than a moment, right? An ongoing movement, um, which has been quite extraordinary, and and we forget it's it's is recent, right? Last fall, so when this Harvey Last Weinstein. Mm-hmm. So Nicole Vivalis, what uh, what are your thoughts, top of mind? Sure. So my talk mostly focused on um, sort of the legal aspect of due process and how that interfaces with some of the backlash that we'd been seeing out of the Me Too movement. And it was really sort of driven by Erica approached me for the panel just three days before this tweet from Donald Trump, which said, people's lives are being shattered and destroyed by a mere allegation. Some are true and some are false. Some are old and some are new. There is no recovery for someone falsely accused. Life and career gone. Is there no such thing any longer as due process? And we sort of kept hearing that refrain in the in the wake of some of the allegations that were coming forward on, you know, on Twitter a lot of the times, other social media outlets in person. And I just thought that's not really the right way to discuss this issue. Um, for one thing, due process is a right that you are sort of given against the government to allow them not to take your life, liberty, or property without due process of the law. And we're not really talking about those things here. We're not talking about... Um, people being thrown in jail. Sexual harassment is not against the law in a criminal sense. Um, we are we are potentially talking about people who are being disciplined by their schools or maybe expelled from their schools. Uh, we are talking about disciplinary action in the workplace, um, but we're not talking about these sort of core issues of life, liberty, due process, er, and you know your property. And so, so I likened this in my talk to something my mom likes to say. She always sort of. She'll, she'll say something and I'll react to it. And she'll be like, well, it's a free country and I, it's, I have free speech and I can say what I want. And I'm like, mom, that only protects you as against the government. That means like the police can't come throw you in jail for saying what you just said. <laughs> but I can still react <laughs> to that in whatever way I find appropriate. And, um, and that strikes me as the better sort of way to think about this, this movement. Um, it's, it's not that you're entitled necessarily to due process as a result of of being accused in the Me Too movement. And as Maddie pointed out, I think during the panel before, most of these are anonymous. Most of these are not naming individual perpetrators. They're saying, this is a thing that happened to me. And so, you know, claims of people running afoul of due process strike me as 
not the right way to have a discussion about this. Mm. I want to follow up. Um, it seems like the biggest remedy so far has been shaming. Yeah, I think that that's both a remedy and maybe even a deterrent, right? So maybe maybe people uh, will think twice about um, about taking actions like that in the workplace, in their living situations, or just with people around them, um, knowing that what they used to do, there weren't really any repercussions for in a lot of settings. And now there's this outlet for people. And maybe you'll be named, maybe not, but hopefully that acts as a little bit of a deterrent. So that only works, as this was brought up in the panel, only works in an environment where shame works. Right? <laughs> That's so the, so true. The, so the shameless or those situations, those environments where shame doesn't work, then shaming is not going to work. Right. I mean, you're, you know, your average person walking down the street in a small town, you know, their name ends up on social media and so what. Um, but I think it does have an impact on those who hold a lot of power and prestige in our society because their name means something. It's, you know, it's a brand to them in a lot of instances. And so I, you know, so that can be a deterrent in that setting, whether it's as an effective deterrent in, you know, in your everyday setting is, I think, less clear. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me turn to Erica Holberg. What's um, top of mind uh, as we get into this topic? Um, Great. So um, I I talked about, my starting off point was the, um, the Babe.net story about Aziz Ansari, um, which featured a young woman uh, with the pseudonym of Grace. And um, in my presentation, I wanted to talk about all the ways that this was a problematic ex- extension of Me Too, right? Um, Grace never clearly um, voices no. She seems to, in some sense, consent or submit to the behavior that she alleges um, Anzari um, did to her. Um, and I wanted to talk about how this is, in fact, um, a good thing to bring this under the umbrella of Me Too because it brings certain issues to the forefront of our attention. First, and I think um, maybe even more inter- most interestingly, is the way that um, living under sexist oppression, that this makes all of us into worse moral agents, but especially women. Women are um, socialized into passive acceptance of male bad behavior, and that this is part of the phenomenon of Me Too that women are being able to talk about is the way that um, these things happen to them and how they wish that they could have done something better or different, that they had said something, that they had reacted in some different way in that moment. Um, And so I think voicing this regret is an important part of Me Too, and certainly that regret is palpable in the story, uh, in Grace's story. I think um, further, uh, I think what this story does a good job of showing is once we have um, people who are, I don't know how to say it, like lesser moral agents, less strong than they would like to be and we would like them to be, this puts a a kind of problematic pressure on the ideal of consent as the one and only thing we need to know if we want to know whether or not sex is legitimate or morally good. Um, once you have these kinds of coercive situations and um, like men train not to notice certain sorts of things and women train not to speak up about certain sorts of violations, then consent becomes a problematic issue. So I wanted to say even though this was a messy example, and certainly not the kind of clear sort of abuse that some of the Me Too stories are, that it's a it's a good thing to be talking about and it was a good thing to be talking under um, about within this mo- movement of Me Too. Yeah, that is a good example, I think, an interesting example. As you say, messy, uh, gray areas. Yeah. Um, and some I've heard have, have said, okay, with Aziz Ansari, we're going a little too far with the 
Yeah, I think it's ups- it's particularly upsetting because he um, he puts himself forward as a feminist comic, and certainly we want more feminists in the world, right? Men and women, <laughs> and comedy is a really great way to try to push people to rethink certain basic assumptions. So, um, and I don't think any of that goes away. Um, you know, lots of people can be feminists and still have room in their lives to work on being better in terms of uh, gender power dynamics. So, um, I don't, I don't. I don't think it's that he becomes, um, I don't know, a horrible monster because of the story. But I think what the monster shows is, I mean, sorry, I, sorry, I think what the, show, <laughs> the story shows is the way that we can often be blind to the way that our own actions are feeding into a kind of socialized acceptance of gender norms. What do our other panelists think about this, this particular example? And, uh, and I guess how, how we're socialized, right? Yeah, so uh, some of the most interesting responses I've seen to the Aziz Ansari um, piece are people talking about how this illuminated for them the behaviors they might have been engaging in that they didn't realize were inappropriate. Um, People coming forward after that piece came out and saying, I've done the things that Ansari did, and I didn't realize that those were problematic. I didn't realize that the, you know, the, the lack of a no is not a yes, right? So training people um, not only to get consent, but to think beyond consent and about the enthusiasm of all participants and the, the benefit to all participants and not just, can I get away with this? Hmm. Well, let me turn to you. Uh, you just heard from uh, Maddie Burkert. Uh, let me turn to you. Um, First of all, before I, I have you maybe give a, uh, you know, your top of mind on this, before we went on the air, you were talking about uh, how you had, I guess, informally been talking to many women. Well, uh, particularly uh, on social media, but also uh, in person. And uh, so far, only one woman I've talked to has said that she has not experienced um, some form of harassment, um, either in the workplace or um, in daily life. Uh, and, I, and I should mention a few of the men I've spoken to have also uh, experienced harassment okay. and abuse in these ways. Yeah. And I, I'm, I hope I'm not revealing too much, much here, uh, a conversation before we go on the air kind of a thing. But you were saying that, in I guess, in preparation for the panel... And uh, all of this, you you know, your your head's not in a real good place. You're you're kind of it's a little depressing to. It's troubling. It's troubling to think about the the ways that people are made to feel less than fully human on a daily basis and in ways large and small. Um, and and this is not you know to point out this is not just the week leading up right. This is <laughs> the the life of many women. This is the you know this is this is going back you know, decades. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so, Maddie Burkert, what uh, what was your focus in the, in the panel? So, as a professor in 17th and 18th century British literature, I was thinking about how does the work that I do in my research and in the classroom respond to these pressing issues? Uh, people have this idea sometimes of uh, academia and particularly humanities as a kind of an ivory tower or a luxury compared to more pragmatic or practical disciplines. Um, and I've just been thinking a lot about how when we study things like history and literature and philosophy um, and sociology, we get purchase on issues that really matter in our daily lives and we get a different kind of context on them. So I gave a few specific examples from my own area of specialization, 17th and 18th century British culture. Um, and really I was focusing on the fact that this work's already happening 
happening in the popular media. So I highlighted a piece from the Washington Post um, where a writer pointed out how these issues of consent that we're debating today um, have their roots in the political theories of philosophers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, who theorized the consent of the governed, um, which we now think of as a basic political tenet that you should consent to your government, but they did allow for coercion to be a part of that consent. And so there are these links to the fundamental ways we think about freedom and agency in our culture that go back centuries. Um, I gave the example of uh, a writer who's a professor at um, City University of New York in Queens uh, who wrote a very powerful piece about her experience of being abused um, as a graduate student and how she um, she writes she, she rewrites many of the poems that we teach all the time in the English classroom that are in all the Norton anthologies and, and uses her rewriting of them to point out how um, how a culture that normalizes violence against women and, and objectification of women is baked into our literary traditions. And then the third and final example I gave was of um, novels from the uh, 18th century, and I'm teaching a class right now on 18th century literature where we just read the novel Pamela, which was the blockbuster hit of the 18th century, um, the really the first smash hit novel, the Harry Potter of its time. Um, and it's uh, about 500 pages long um, in the classroom edition I'm using right now, and about 300 of those 500 pages are uh, a woman, a young woman, 15 years old, household servant, trying not to be assaulted by her employer. Um, which seems very strange to us that this would be a smash hit novel. Um, and so in talking to my students, I asked, like, what is the value of reading a novel like this today? And they were very, um, they, they had very powerful remarks about how it parallels things they see in young adult literature today, how um, I should mention that Pamela's reward for um, <laughs> evading um, this horrible outcome for 300 pages is that she then gets to marry the guy, <laughs> um, right? <Wow>. So <laughs> kind of shocking to our sensibilities. But my students pointed out how this still happens in young adult literature today, that women are taught to um, fix uh, men who mistreat them, um, and that um, they talked about how in the novel it's sort of Pamela's job to fix this guy, and he does need some re-education. The novel does point out how his socialization was wrong, um, but it puts the burden on Pamela to fix him, which doesn't seem quite fair. And, and they talked about how her, her coworkers won't help her because they're afraid of getting fired, they're afraid of repercussions, not getting a letter of recommendation. They talked about how this happens all the time today and how, how Me Too points out larger problems with workplace power dynamics that include but also go beyond gender. So uh, very timely, 18th century, very timely Unfortunately, right? Right, right. Um, what are some examples today of um, culture, you know, novels, uh, things that uh, boys and girls are reading and that might <laughs> might be socializing all of us in the wrong way? Uh, well, um, my students have sometimes pointed to Twilight as a parallel uh, to Pamela in, in these issues of sort of... Um, and. and Full disclosure, I have not read Twilight, and I am not personally casting a value judgment on it, but um, but my students have pointed out some parallels uh, in the past. I, I was just thinking about how hard it is to go back and rewatch um, the scene with Han Solo from the original Star Wars series um, that seemed, I guess, like a normal sort of romantic encounter to many viewers at the time, but when we look at it now, it it is making aggression seem sexy, and it is making it seem as though you just have to kind of convince a woman to submit. Um, so things like that. Hmm. Uh, I guess an example of progress, right? If if you're going back, if most of us are going back, watching that and having a new 
revulsion to it. I don't know. Perspective. <laughs> perspective. Perspective. Um, it does seem like a sea change, right? The, 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 that a lot of people are, have a different perspective, different emphases from what we collectively had just a few months ago. I don't yeah. know what you think, Nicole. I, I think that's true, but I I do think there's still a lot of work to be done. So when you when you asked um, culturally, what are we still seeing that that sort of emboldens these infrastructures? I the first thing that jumped into my mind was dress codes in schools. Mm-hmm. They teach little girls that their bodies are a thing that they need to protect and cover, and they teach little boys that that message is for women only, and it's your job to like in the instance of Pamela, it's your job to keep that all together and and you know keep it hidden and keep it virtuous, whereas um, little boys are not socialized into thinking that way, and they're also being socialized by into like thingifying a woman a young woman's body and and that message carries with them from kindergarten through through the rest of their lives mm. in many instances. Before we go to break, I just want to ask, what do you think has changed? It's, you know, Harvey Weinstein, for example, whispered about rumors, you know, the networks of women that stay away from him, you know, kind of thing, lists of of uh, predators, um, but sort of under the surface. And then it seems like one day to the next, Harvey Weinstein is persona non grata. Um, others are being shamed, and and the sea change. What what do you think is changing, and how to sustain that? Um, I I think that I mean, unless you're famous or rich and powerful, that that hasn't really made much of an impact, right? I, I think it is important to try to change the norms, but I think where I find me too to be most inspiring and most influential is actually at the everyday level of women where this ability to just read about other women's experiences and to voice your own, that that kind of community coming together is incredibly empowering. And right now we have this very exciting thing happening with women becoming more politically active than they've been in a very long time, perhaps ever. And I think that is really where Me Too, to me, is like very, I don't know, inspirational or that, that's, that's where the power and the forces is in moving forward and thinking about, okay, so what do we need to do as women to try to change this? Now, I don't think it's like incumbent upon women to be the ones who fix it. I think there's something, a deep truth about that Maddie's, about Maddie's point that it's not Pamela's problem exactly, but women, I think, are coming together to say, okay, how can we change this together? And because it is a collective action problem, I mean, we're talking about workplace structures. I do think it's something that can only be solved when people come together, women, but also men, to try to fix um, these kinds of learned behaviors and inadequate processes for redress that Nicole was very good at bringing out. Let's take a break. When we come back, um, I want to address the the role of men in the Me Too movement. What should the the role of men be? In the the panel, uh, the example of Matt Damon was brought up, who uh, stepped in with some comments and then was (laughs) was told to be quiet. And then there's the hashtag, (laughs) men just shut up, uh, or men listen, right? Um, And uh, there was a discussion about that, very interesting discussion, but what should the role of uh, men be? And uh, in- interesting point brought up by Erica Holberg just there. Maybe the future is w- what we're seeing, women getting involved in the political process. Um, we'll talk about all these issues. I'd love to hear your experience and your thoughts as well. 
Um, what have you experienced? What did you think on the issues that we're talking about? 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. It's said that prevention is the best cure, but predicting which diseases to prepare for and prevent is not an easy task and often requires attention to emerging diseases in domestic animals and wildlife. In the past 30 years, approximately 75% of new and emerging human diseases have been transmitted from animals. Scientists at Utah State University's Institute for Antiviral Research are working to understand how a number of viruses cause disease an important step in finding ways to prevent their spread or develop cures. Ebola, West Nile, and Zika viruses, and some influenza viruses, are among the disease-causing agents they study that originated in animals, because boundaries between countries and species don't stop a virus. Support for Ag Matters on Utah Public Radio is provided in part by our members and by the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences at Utah State University, offering more than 70 degrees with courses available at USU campuses throughout the state and online. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement. Um, and all related issues, um, and looking at uh, potential changes in the workplace and in society. How does this get sustained, and where the Me Too movement goes from here? We're uh, basing this off a panel discussion which happened recently, uh, sponsored by the USU Department of Languages, Philosophy, and Speech Communications, titled Meaning and Me Too. And we have the panelists with us today. We're grateful for their uh, giving us some time. Erica Holberg with uh, the USU Department of Languages, Philosophy, and Speech Communications. Maddie Berker with the English Department. And Nicole Favalis, who's Director of USU's Institutional Review, Review Board Office. Uh, the place to reach us, we'd love to get your experience and your current thoughts on this whole movement. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have about a half an hour left in the discussion. Uh, so I thought it was interesting, when this panel, perhaps a microcosm of the, of the culture, when you got to Q&A, I think maybe the first five or six... Uh, participants in the Q&A were men. That's right. And I kept looking around. There's a, there's a bunch of women here, but they, they weren't. And then, then when that was brought up, okay, it's uh, then, then some women started asking some questions. Uh, so that gets me into um, the, the, uh, the, the topic. I think a lot of men are wondering, uh, what's, my, what's my place here? What can I do? Um, hopefully the vast majority of men are not sexually harassing they're you know, trying to do what's right but we are socialized right in certain ways um and uh, so maybe we could start with with matt damon i'm sure, not sure who who brought up the uh, example of matt damon matt damon uh, you recall made some comments and then there was a backlash and then there were some hashtags going around one of which was men just shut up or hashtag men listen um I, I think you responded to one of these questions, Nicole Vivalis. What, uh, what would you say? I did, and I wasn't sure about this in the moment, so I wanted to make sure about it before I mentioned it in a public setting. But my recollection is that 
The words shut up and listen came from Matt Damon himself. Um, There was a backlash, a reaction to what he said. And he said, I think it's time for me to shut up and listen. Okay. Um, And I thought that that was very powerful. I think being a public ally is a difficult job. And I think by and large, Matt Damon does a good job of being a feminist ally. Um, But we all step in it from time to time. And and I think the ability to sort of step back and say, I did that. And now I'm going to shut my mouth and really try to understand this so that the next time I speak publicly about it, I'm doing it in a way that is moving the issue forward. I think that's very powerful, and I think that we need more male allies who are willing to engage in that kind of behavior. Mm, okay. What would you say, Maddie Burkert? Um, well, I think uh, I agree. The Matt Damon example, uh, it gives uh, a couple of insights into things that people can do if they want to be an ally uh, and be productive. One is to, um, if if you haven't had these experiences, step back, um, educate yourself, decenter your own sort of reaction, immediate response, and, and do some reading. And don't say to, you know, a, a woman who you know well, like, can you educate me about this? Because that's asking her to do the emotional work of dragging up her experiences and, and resources for you. But actually, you know, the, you know, do some research, educate yourself about these issues. Um, try to check your sort of impulse to defend your own um, experiences and listen to others. And then in terms of a couple of concrete things that the people can do, um, so bystander intervention is really powerful. And a lot of research is coming out suggesting that this is one of the best things that workplaces and campuses can train people. And that is if you notice that something's happening and if it is safe for you to do so, to try to intervene in a way that um, doesn't amplify the situation or, or, um, or make it worse. But, you know, if you're in a group of people and they're making sexist jokes, say, hey, you know, what's that about? We don't we don't do that here. Um, That's not cool. Uh, I heard that, you know, simple things that let people know that's not the social norm around here. You can't you can't get away with that. Um, And and if someone comes forward and tells you that something happened to them, believe them first. Start from a place of not questioning. Oh, are you sure that's what happened? Or um, were you doing anything to invite it? You know, so um, so listening um, and and amplifying the experiences of those who who are trying to have their voices heard. I, I think those are a couple of concrete things. Mm. I, I, I was just going to say, I love the advice that Maddie gave during the talk itself, during the Q&A, right, where she talked about the ways that women can be of assistance to one another. Um, so as Maddie, Maddie pointed out, and this is, this is just a social fact, that in general, women in um, group discussions they tend for us not to get not to get the chance to speak, not to feel free to speak, right? As you pointed out, there's a kind of reticence to speak on women's part. Then um, when they do speak, they're often interrupted. They're interrupted much more than men are. And then finally, often men, women will say something, and then um, a man will say it later, and everyone will act as if this is the first time that this idea has been brought forward, right? And um, Maddie suggested, and I just thought it was like great advice, and that's why it bears repeating, <laughs> that women can say, oh, that's a really good idea. When a a fellow colleague, a fellow female colleague says something, right? So in a sense, slowing down the conversation, drawing attention to the women's contributions and then reinforcing each other, helping each other, um, well, you use the word just now, Maddie, amplify what uh, women's ideas, women's thoughts, women's insights. I thought that was a great um, practical advice. (laughs) And and I think that gets into um, the fact that one thing that's really interesting about how how the Me Too movement is is shaping up is that it's it's drawing attention to issues of sexual abuse and harassment that occur not only in the workplace but in other spaces. It's also drawing attention to the 
fact that in the workplace, sexual abuse and harassment are on a spectrum of gendered um, microaggressions. Um, and, and we should point out that uh, all of these experiences are made um, more acute and often more dangerous for pe- people of color and people who are in other um, marginalized identities within the workplace. So the, the work, one of the points that was made in the workshop, uh, no, work, not workshop, the panel, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> was that uh, I think maybe you made this uh, point, Erica, that, uh, or maybe it was Nicole, anyway, um, that the workplace is kind of lagging behind. It's it's in some fields, entertainment industry gets gets the publicity and some prominent uh, men have been, uh, you know, shamed to the sidelines, uh, prominent predators like Harvey Weinstein, uh, but in the, in the in the workplace maybe maybe progress is slower. I think that's true. Um, so in this room, right, we're a bunch of, I don't want to make too many assumptions, privileged white women, and we know where to go if something like this happens in our workplace setting. I know where the HR office is. I know where the Affirmative Action Equal Opportunity office is. Um, and so in the in the Time Magazine Silence Breakers piece, there's a great quote from Ashley Judd where she said, what was I supposed to do about Harvey Weinstein? Was I supposed to go to the, you know, fantasy attorney general of moviedom? Like where I, even I, a really powerful woman, didn't know where my outlet is. And I think that that is magnified to the nth degree in um, in professions like, you know, domestic work, um, where you don't have an infrastructure. You're going into people's homes and you're doing that to make a living often as an independent person, and there's no infrastructure for you to lean on for something like sexual harassment. Um, and that's, you know, that there that leaves a lot to be desired. There's how can we create safe places for women to engage in that kind of work when there's no infrastructure there to support them for something like this happening? Mm. Uh, how does that get changed? Uh, I think that Men in in positions of power who deal with these kinds of infrastructures need to do a lot to change it, and that's not just saying that it's on men. But um, but you look around, and so a lot of the a lot of the backlash having to do with due process focuses on universities. Well, who are the presidents of universities? Seventy five percent of universities are run by a man in the United States. Um, you look around at you know K to twelve schools. More men are superintendents than principals then make up the vast majority of education workers, right? Most teachers are women, and yet men are elevated into these policy-making positions. Um, and so they have a lot of power to influence structures and make this sort of thing something that doesn't happen in their own workplaces. And I think only then can we expect to see the trickle down into things like domestic work, field work, professions like that. Mm. Maddie Burkert. Uh so it's really interesting uh, thinking about the fact that right now the people in the positions of most power, the people shaping workplace cultures from the top, are predominantly men. Um, I found an article by Frank Dobbin, who's a sociology professor at Harvard, and he published uh, a piece in the Harvard Business Review along with his collaborator, Alexander Kalev, um, about the reasons that hiring and promoting more women is the most likely way um, for workplaces to find a solution because it gets to underlying causes of harassment that are hard to get at in other ways. Um, I also found a study in the Yale Law Journal from uh, Jennifer Priestley, who's now an assistant U.S. attorney, um, that showed that male judges were half as likely as female judges to rule in favor of plaintiffs in harassment cases. Um, So there is an element here of larger social assumptions and constructions around gender and power um, that can't just be fixed by having an office that people can go to that really do have to do with fundamentally altering the structures of power. Um, And also, um, many of those offices um, are perceived to, or in some cases do, 
work to protect employers. Um, and so the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission um, found that um, a third of people who complained to their company about um, about an incident before moving forward to it reported being penalized or fired or further harassed or demoted. Um, so, so those uh, offices are not a panacea either in all workplaces. Hmm. Uh, so um, the, the power structure changed. So how does the power structure get changed? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I, I, I'm turning to Erica Holder. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I like to, I, I mean, for me, I talk about ethics, so that means norms. And I do think that this is, this is again, I mean, so Me Too is exciting. Um, again, not necessarily in the concrete effects it's having, but because there's this norm shift underway, right? Um, Me Too is actually able to work because there is shame felt, as you put out. If people were just shameless about this behavior, it wouldn't matter, you know. Um, So, you know, if you watch Mad Men, (laughs) there's all sorts of terrible behavior happening, and nobody seems to mind it, right? It's just it's not, people aren't culturally conditioned to see it as bad behavior. And um, I think... You know, Me Too is both, it's a way of saying, okay, this is bad, and it's also a way of saying this bad behavior is way more prevalent than we would like to acknowledge, right? So both of those thoughts structure Me Too and are, are I think, what makes it effective in trying to shift norms in a better direction. But um, there is no easy, quick answer. I think um, a lot of it's going to have to be local solutions to the concrete problems that people are running up against. So whether that's a particular individual, but I think usually, more generally, it's going to be the way that a bad individual is being empowered by a structure that's less than ideal. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about how um, in some circles, in some ways, this issue gets politicized. Um, And I guess that's inevitable if uh, the president of the United States is one of the accused of of sexual harassment. uh, And some people are going to retreat to their, their tribal position. Um, I want to talk about that, and uh, we'll talk about much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research and sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Next time on Ask Me Another, actor Mojan Marno from the series The Blacklist talks about her role as a shadowy FBI operative. I think it's always interesting when you get to play a lot of different shades of a person. So we've seen her for many seasons be very tough and very hard to read. So join me, Ophira Eisenberg, for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, why is it so hard for some CEOs to leave the corner office? I don't want to relax too much because I'm afraid that bad things will happen. We wrap up our CEO series and move on to Chicago and why it matters. If there's anything we're missing now, it's the middle. You know, what is the middle of America? It's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with our panel. Uh, Erica Holberg, USU Assistant Professor of Philosophy, Maddie Burkert, USU Assistant Professor of English, and Nicole Vuvalis, Director of USU's Institutional Review Board Office. We're talking about Time's Up, Me Too, 
um, and related uh, topics. And uh, we've been talking about where does the Me Too movement go uh, from here. We'll get to talking a little more about that a little later on in this segment. We'd love to get your perspective, your experience at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Um, so as I referenced before the break, um, and let me get into this uh, with a conversation I heard yesterday just on Morning Edition. Um, no, it was here and now. So the, the interviewer was uh, talking to what sounded like a Trump supporter, uh, who the, their go-to Trump supporter they, they go back to from time to time. And they were talking about, okay, what do you think about, uh, what do you think about, uh, and, and this supporter, Trump supporter, <clears throat> was making a differentiation between Roy Moore, who she did not support. She voted for, for the Democrat, Doug Jones. Um, and she was differentiating that. She says, I believe those accusers. But she says, I, I just think Stormy Daniels is in it, to, in it to get her money, whatever. And she didn't even address uh, the, you know, the sexual harassment charges against the, the president. It seemed to, be, it seemed to me that uh, this, was, this was kind of tribal, right? That, that, uh, granted that uh, Roy Moore was you know, supposed to be in her tribe. But, uh, um, and she even uh, brought up the, the, the controversial statement. She says uh, uh, she believed that opposing the president bordered on treason. He's been elected, and so we've got to support him now no matter what kind of a person he is. It seems to be what she was saying. Now, that's a kind of extreme example. But this, you know, this does get politicized. And I, I wonder, first of all, to that point, and then does it have potential you know, bad effects for the whole movement? I uh, wonder who wants to jump in. Sure. I think it's been politicized even since Bill Clinton and Erica had a wonderful segment in her initial talk about um, Monica Lewinsky and how I think we if we look back on that, we would completely reframe how we perceived that incident or those incidents as having occurred uh, in the era of Me Too and how she's reframing how she thinks about it. So, um, you know, these kinds of bad actors exist in all facets of our workplace and infrastructure, including the political system. And so it doesn't surprise me that they then become politicized. Um, what does surprise me is is some of the reactions that I've heard. So, for example, when you said, you know, that he's the president and thus we need to support him, well, I think a great faction of those those ideologically aligned people would also say that the Second Amendment protects their right to bear arms against the government in the case that an insurrection is needed. And so um, some cognitive dissonance in, in those statements, and I, I tend to see a lot of that when we're talking about this in a, in a more political way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to see somebody um, that you count as one of your own accused of these misdeeds, right? You want um, the people who are on your side, on your team, to be moral exemplars, and it's upsetting and disappointing and um, can cause a lot of conflict um, to see, I don't know, somebody that you want to believe in and support um, accused of these these actions. And I think this is a this is a kind of fundamental issue with Me Too, right? The way that... Um, the people being accused can sometimes seem like good guys, right? They often do until these allegations come to light. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think there's an easy answer here. I do think that, um, uh, I, I guess I wonder how much people really believe that, um, 
believe that Donald Trump is innocent of all of these charges brought against him. I think there's a difference between thinking, well, I still need to support him and thinking, well, these pe- these people are all making it up. I, I don't know. I just, I just think of my mother, right, who I don't know if she voted for Trump or not. Uh, she did say that she believed that he did something with some of these women, at least, right, that he wasn't completely innocent. Um, but I don't think that was enough to completely undermine her support for him. So I think... Um, I don't know. These, these things are just difficult, right? And I, 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 this is why I wanted to, um, and just to bring it back to the Zianzari, I think this is this is one, of, I mean, because you can have good people who do these things. Now, you know, this comes back to the spectrum, right? Certain kinds of violations or offenses, we're going to be more willing to forgive or, you know, say, okay, if you try to make amends, we're going to, like, trust you and help you move forward together, whereas other ones, we're not going to be as willing to do that. But, um, it's, it's just a difficult, I mean, this is, this is part of this, this question of trust. So I thought that fact you gave earlier about the judges was very interesting, Maddie, how there's just different experiences that women and men have fundamentally different in many, di- in, in many ways. And that this has a lot to do with who we trust when we hear different sides of, of, of a story. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that when I hear a lot of people's experiences, it's, they're quite plausible to me because I'm like, yeah, that something like that happened to me or something like that happened to my good friend or I know six other people that that happened to. It's, it's really plausible to me often when I hear things that sound implausible to other people who haven't had those experiences. Um, so I think that that's one thing. Speaking of the politicization, I think it's very interesting. The NPR did a poll in December um, and they found that nine out of ten Americans support zero tolerance policies around workplace sexual harassment. But when you get into specific questions, do you think Donald Trump sexually harassed people? Do you think Al Franken sexually harassed people? Um, People break down by party and gender very predictably. Um, And so it's really interesting um, that there may be now a sort of desire to show that you're on the right side of history, that you support these policies. But when it comes to who do you actually trust, people still break down into their sort of personal identities and their groups. And I just conduct a thought experiment with myself almost daily. Um, I check my gut reaction to a news story by subbing in. If it's a story about someone who I don't agree with or a policy I don't agree with, I try to sub in one I do agree with and how would I respond in that situation. Um, So I don't know if we can all try to do that for things that don't have to be partisan because sexual harassment does not have to be a partisan issue. And we'll certainly see this as we as we head. We're already seeing it as we head up to 2020, even 2018. But certainly 2020, uh, you know, Senator Gillibrand uh, from New York is making this the central hmm. focus of her campaign. And she's going to be saying, vote for me, vote for all Democrats, and you'll have a better chance of solving the problem. But she was also part of a, a coalition of people in Congress who, um, largely women, but some men as well, who have been working on this issue of forced arbitration, which are these agreements that many employers make their employees sign saying that if uh, you have a grievance, you'll settle it internally, you won't sue us. Um, and they've been working, and this is a bipartisan group. I mean, it is, I think, fairly evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, um, and is a good example of how this doesn't always have to be a partisan issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and we, we've seen uh, Speaker Ryan, you know, essentially force out a couple of his members uh, when when they got into trouble in, in this area. Uh, for for example, um, so I, I think back to back to culture shift. As we've been saying here, it's I think Maddie, you said it most recently here. 
that um, most women have have had a completely different experience with this than most men. And uh, so, you know, it's a it's a big difference in perspective based on experience. It is. I mean, it's it's easy, I think, to hear, oh, well, you know, that thing you said in the meeting, it wasn't ignored because you're a woman. It was it maybe wasn't a very good idea. But I, I mean, I had this happen to me literally three weeks ago. Um, there were two women in the room and five men. The two women, one put out an idea, the other amplified it went nowhere. The next meeting, I asked a male colleague in that room to give the same idea, and it was adopted right then and there. Hmm. I mean, so it's, but it's hard to, I think it's hard to live that experience as a man. And my male colleague, I think, learned something as a result of that, something he hadn't really seen in action, because he's not paying that close of attention. He's used to his ideas being adopted when they are proposed in meetings. It's, it's difficult to understand that perspective when you haven't lived it time and time again. Hmm. Maddie Burkert, I want to uh, return to culture. Um, so it's been a long time. It's been centuries since the, some of these things have been reinforced, reinforced, reinforced. Men and women are reading these works. And even to today, your students are pointing out that at least some works of literature and some pieces of culture are c- still reinforcing these what we would say are you know bad stereotypes, bad cues. Um, are are we seeing a change? Do you think? Uh, that's a huge question. Um, I, I don't know if we're seeing a change. I think one thing you learn when you um, study literature and culture from a historical perspective is how much things change and stay the same. How much continuity there is in what appears to be seismic shift. How cyclical things can be. So. It's hard to tell a, a narrative about the time you're living in. But what I will say is that um, when I did ask my students, what's the merit of reading a book like Pamela now? Um, one student said that she hears sometimes when people talk about Me Too or sexual harassment or gender discrimination, she hears people say, it's not that big a deal. It's only a handful of bad actors. It's a handful of people behaving badly. Most people don't behave that way. Um, and it's not, it's not a huge problem. It's just being blown out of proportion. And she said that she felt that seeing the consistency across time of how these problems can manifest, even in, in moments that feel very different in many ways, um, helps her make the case that these are serious issues that are really deeply embedded in our history and culture and in the philosophical ideas and, and literary forms and cultural traditions we hold dear. So. Mm. I want to talk a little bit more, Nicole Wallace, about uh, this this idea of due process. And you're hearing this coming from men, right? Um, there's there's a worry among some men that uh, I, I'm I, I could potentially be innocent, but I could be caught up. I could be collateral damage in this. I could be falsely sure. accused. Yeah, and I I would say that um, well, first of all, there are a ton of studies showing that um, false reports make up less than 1% of all of these accusations. Um, And so I think data is on the side of you not getting caught up in a sort of false accusation or or something that was embellished and moved forward. And also, even setting that aside, these structures are not really set up for the success of women in many cases. Um, It's it's very difficult to prove these sorts of things. And so when there is a consequence that falls out of it, 
you can be pretty sure that something took place that was inappropriate. Um, and again, these systems are being designed by and large by men. And so I, I think that if there's a concern that the system is not fair or that it's, you know, it's not looking at all sides adequately, I would say you're in a position to change that system. What what are you interested in, in seeing come out of that? Um, I I think that it also works to the detriment of women in many ways. So in the talk, I shared a story about a young woman in uh, the state of Washington who had been, her house had been broken into and she was raped and she was eventually forced because she, her story shifted over time because this happens when you encounter a very traumatic event. Um, she was actually charged with filing a false report. And then it turns out that um, this man had engaged in the same behavior in Colorado. And the only reason they found out that this did actually happen to the woman in Washington was because the assailant had taken a picture of this woman's ID on her chest after he had raped her. And he kept that in his apartment in Colorado. And so they were able to go back and sort of start to undo some of the damage that that system had done to her. But I don't think there's really any undoing the trauma of having to live that and then having to publicly say, um, that that you filed a false report or it wasn't true, and so I'd, I'd again say that even where there are systems, they're they're not set up for the benefit of women, and and getting caught up in that in terms of a false allegation is so unlikely as to not be something worth discussing in the broader movement. Mm-hmm. And I would just add that um, a small percentage of false reporting happens with regards to all crimes, um, but we. And, and the level of false reporting for sexual assault is um, on, on par with those, according to, I, I looked into some statistics too, and like the FBI and the Department of Justice um, indicate that the level of false reporting for sexual crimes is similar to that of for other crimes. We don't say, um, when someone says, I got robbed or I got mugged, our first response is not to question that. And also, um, we we don't, as a society, have a great fear about false reporting of armed robberies or false reporting of, um, you know, of muggings or uh, assault and battery. Uh, we have a huge amount of fear about false reporting of sexual assault, and that is because um, of very deep-running cultural currents that have taught us not to trust women's accounts of their experiences. Mm. And to protect your privileged status, I think, as a man. Yeah. Uh, we just have a, a couple minutes left. I, I wonder, uh, this is a key question a lot of people are asking, uh, we forget how recent the Me Too movement is, and uh, f- so then we wonder, uh, what's the staying power? What's what's the future, do you think? <laughs> well, I, I actually just want to add something about the previous conversation, and I don't want to disagree with anything that Maddie or Nicole just said, but I do think part of what makes this fear of false reporting as prevalent as it is is that you don't have to have the intention to be violating or abusing a woman to be the thing that you're actually doing. And this is what makes these sorts of crimes very different, actually, than a mugging, where you actually have to want to be mugging the person to be doing that. Um, there, there is, I do think that there's like questionable motivations or questionable judgments involved in sexual harassment and sexual assault. I do not in any way want to downplay that and say these people accused of this or people who do this are completely innocent. But I do think that the nature of the crime itself, the nature of this kind of personal violation, makes it, in a sense, more difficult to remedy, more difficult to talk about, more difficult to have an honest conversation around. Um, as for the staying power of Me Too, I think um, 
something that to me is very exciting about Me Too is that, well, normally in philosophy, if you write an unfocused paper, it becomes worse. Like it's messy and it's all over the place and it doesn't it doesn't actually get the job done. But I think what I'm seeing with Me Too is the way that a kind of lack of focus, a kind of inclusiveness, a kind of spreading out is actually giving it more and more power. That is, it's it, like people who've gotten, like read these stories and feel moved and feel empowered by the kind of community that women are establishing amongst each other are then reaching out into new places and doing new things. So I talked earlier about political activism, but I also think, you know, in efforts to try to change workplace norms or procedures, um, just trying to um, change how certain things are taught or how certain issues are addressed, maybe even with their own daughters or, um, you know, these, this kind of like spread into different issues and causes like Black Lives Matter. I mean, just trying to think about how respect for persons can spread outward. I think that this gives me to a kind of lasting political impact that um, in some interesting and bizarre way is continuing to make it grow, even as it becomes more diffuse. So I think that there is this kind of interesting, um, I don't know, out reach that Me Too is having on our society. Um, and I think part of it's because of the way that people are getting angry. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that that is that can be empowering. Well, we've reached the end of our time. We uh, thank very much Erica Holberg, uh, USU Assistant Professor of Philosophy, Maddie Burkert, USU Assistant Professor of English, and Nicole Vuvalis, Director of USU's Institutional Review Board Office. Uh, thanks to each of you for coming in. Thanks for having thank us. You. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Coming up tomorrow, it's the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. We are going to be talking with Dr. Forrest Crawford from uh, Weber State University, and we'll be joined uh, briefly Uh, from Memphis by uh, USU professor Jason Gilmore. Uh, We hope to hear from you as well. That's our program tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Game wardens in Maine have jurisdiction just like state troopers, statewide, any crime, anytime. But when it comes to violent crime, they really only deal with violence against, like, trout. Join us next time for more True Stories Told Live. This week, Zimbabwe camping, goths, and grace. That's the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Today you're going to hear from the guys behind the cult comedy Super Troopers 2. We've got a lot to talk about since Super Troopers 2 has Mounties in red coats and Rob Lowe playing a Quebec mayor inspired by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It's coming up on Q from PRI or Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.